Hi, it's Fraser here. And before we get into this latest episode of the Spiked podcast, I just wanted to thank all of you who are donating to Spiked. It's thanks to your contributions that we can keep producing our fearless and challenging journalism, even in the most difficult and censorious times. So we cannot thank you enough. For those of you who haven't yet made a donation to Spiked, but would like to, all we're asking for at the moment is £5 per month. If that sounds doable, it's really easy to give by going to spiked-online.com and hitting the big red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the big red donate button. Thanks in advance and now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week as ever we have Spiked's deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show COVID conspiracy theories, the economic impact of the lockdown, and the Labour Party's recent bout of infighting. But do you know what you're doing now? You're laying 5G. You know that kills people. 5G burning. Burning, 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 burning. This COVID-19 scam illusion. The stories now have got a fact that they play a role in the spread of the disease. That's just nonsense. But it's very easy to say it is not true because it suits the state narrative. That's all I would say as someone with an inquiring mind. Apparently, if you look hard enough at the new £20 note, you can see a tower radiating 5G signals next to the coronavirus symbol. This is just one of the many conspiracy theories that creates a dubious connection between the outbreak of COVID-19 and the rollout of 5G, the latest generation of telecommunications infrastructure. The theory has spread so far and so fast that it has started a wave of arson attacks against telecommunications masts. Nearly 60 of those masts have now been set on fire in the UK alone. So what are we to make of the rise of these conspiracy theories? Tom, your thoughts? Well, I think in a way, coronavirus is a bit is a bit of a gift to the conspiracy theorist. You know, it, in the words of David Icke in an interview that he did recently, which was actually pulled down from YouTube, which we might get into, it ticks all of the boxes insofar as, um, <laughs> you know, explaining the plot to bring about what, in he, what he calls the Hunger Games society that we're headed to. You know, it's this global problem. There's been all these authoritarian responses to it. There's the vaccines bit, which is an old obsession of many conspiracy theorists. And of course, there's this 5G thing, which is this new idea that the radio waves are somehow either spreading coronavirus or breaking down our immune systems to the point where we're more susceptible to it. So yeah, it kind of ticks a lot of boxes in many respects. There's the long running problem of conspiracy theories, you know, kind of feeding off of that sense that a lot of people have in the face of such kind of big global challenges, the idea that it can't just be something which has happened and that we're struggling to deal with. It has to be something that's by design, something that's by malevolent intent. You know, there is a kind of tendency abroad. I think conspiracy theories appeal to it, which is to see basically malevolent actors everywhere and also individuals as kind of, you know, the sheeple who aren't really necessarily wise to what's going on feeds that kind of slight misanthropic tendency you see on corners of the internet. And coronavirus has just, I think, exploded all of it. But I think one thing that Frank Frady touched on on Spike this week, and it's, it's worth talking about, is the extent to which the kind of conspiratorial mindset has become increasingly mainstream um, yeah. in recent years. So obviously everyone's been quite shocked or having a bit of a laugh at these um, people, predominantly it seems in Merseyside and the West Midlands, attacking 5G phone masks. But nevertheless, there are kind of more acceptable forms of conspiracy theorising these days, whether it's Russia swung the Brexit referendum and Trump's election, you know, even through to this week, kind of more low level stuff, you know, Chris Lockwood, the Europe editor 
of The Economist casting doubt on whether or not Boris Johnson was as sick with coronavirus as he claimed he would be. You know, there's this kind of tendency is actually a lot more abroad and you can't help but feel that the kind of mainstreaming of conspiracy theories, if nothing else, will feed the kind of the more ludicrous £5 note, 5G extremes of it. Yeah, and I mean, we've even seen governments embrace um, conspiracy theories um, in the coronavirus crisis. China is, is kind of infamously claiming that the coronavirus came from a soldier in America, which is a complete conspiracy theory, but being spread by high up officials, high up members of, of the government. So talk about mainstream, it's, you know, being propagated by governments themselves to some extent. Uh, Ella, your thoughts? Yeah, there's always been nutty conspiracy theorists about. I remember I had a driving instructor once who was adamant that he had this tape that proved that 9-11 was staged. And, you know, there's always been <laughs> there's always been people around like that. But as Tom says, it's remarkable how perhaps not necessarily widespread, but more prevalent conspiracy theories have become. I mean, it was a f- funny incident, but a relatively serious one. There was this big fuss over Eamon Holmes, the one of the presenters of This Morning, it was quite interesting. Um, they had a segment on where they were sort of rubbishing 5G uh, conspiracy theories. And Eamon Holmes said this really interesting thing when he said, you just can't dismiss this. I have an inquiring mind and I think we should be able to talk about these things. And of course, he's right in the round that there should be nothing off the table and you should be able to talk about all sorts of things. But that's slightly different from uh, engaging in thoughtful debate about either flat earth policies or the <laughs> government setting up 5G masks around the country. But on a more serious note, Part of the problem, I think, and Frank Frazee does touch on this in his column in Spiked this week, is that there's a broader problem with people feeling confident to say what's true and what's not. You know, you have a a larger problem of sort of relativism in which if everyone's opinion is equal and everything's relative to everyone, then it's very hard to say you're wrong on this and make a judgment with a certain amount of confidence. And that's slightly different to the discussion we've been having in relation to Brexit about the crisis of experts. And there's lots of people at the moment I've noticed who during the coronavirus pandemic are sort of finger wagging saying, ha ha, we told you, you know, if you rubbished the concept of experts, this is where it gets you. No one knows what's true and what's false. And actually, that's not what's happened because people are being quite respectful of the CMO and the CSO in those press briefings and are listening to the experts But a bigger problem is that there's sort of no authority. There's a lack of authority in knowing who to turn to, what information to turn to. And I, you know, that plays out in the kind of relatively serious prevalence of fake news and nonsense surrounding coronavirus from, you know, ibuprofen is bad for you if you take it right up to the more crazy stuff about, you know, people eating pangolins and this being a kind of conspiracy of countries placing this as sort of biomedical warfare. The question is, how do you defeat it? How do you combat this? And it's tempting for us to say we need to control information. You need to stop the spread of lies happening on social media. You need to have an official kind of clampdown on this. And of course, that's partly why we are in the situation we're in, because we haven't been able to have open discussion about this, because actually the easiest way to fight the 5G conspiracy theory or any of these is to draw out the madness in them. Everyone knows that the one thing a conspiracy theorist loves is being told that they can't spread their conspiracy theories. That's what feeds these kind of mad people's ideas. It offers the proof of the conspiracy. Mm. (laughs) Tom, your thoughts? No, I completely agree with that. And conspiracy theorists love being censored. 
you know, and I think we saw a little bit of that in the past couple of weeks when um, this interview with David Icke was pulled down. Um, because as Ali was saying, it vindicates their entire worldview that, you know, the uh, state narrative, as Eamon Holmes put it, cannot take <laughs> dissent. Um, and that's the one thing which I think is really dangerous about the attempts to sense conspiracy theorists. YouTube has officially announced that it won't host um, videos which make this discredited connection between 5G and the coronavirus. Ofcom have also been probing into certain TV stations, London Live in particular, kind of ran a slightly different version of that David Icke interview and are being questioned for it. And I think it's a really dangerous road to go down because on the one hand, it does vindicate their narrative. On the other hand, you don't want to, I mean, they already exist in these corners anyway, but to push them almost exclusively into the dark recesses of the internet, you know, where there isn't a counterpoint where things can be presented in a very different way, where we don't even see how the arguments are progressing so that we can actually find different ways to counter them, I think is is very dangerous. And, you know, even up until a few years ago, and this is something which predates the coronavirus, you know, there was space to deal with these people in public debate. You wouldn't have them on the Today programme every week because they're nutcases who, like David Icke, genuinely thinks the world is run by shape-shifting lizards. You know, this, this is not someone you bring on just to have a political discussion. But, you know, people like David Icke, um, Alex Jones, these people have been on the BBC from time to time, often just to kind of show themselves up. But I think that kind of approach, rather than this kind of censorship, this cordon sanitaire, being able to talk about their ideas openly but not feeling like that will just necessarily instantly infect people with these nefarious ideas, I think is the right way to go about them. Because otherwise you do, as Ella was saying, just kind of vindicate the narrative that they're spreading and make them and the people who listen to them think that maybe they've got a point. Yeah, I, th- I think that's absolutely right. And I think the, you know, in the long run, the only way to counter this is to, you know, raise the level of debate, not lower it. And I, and I think, you know, censorship is is only a way of kind of hampering our own debating skills and, you know, preventing us from learning the best ways to counter things, as you suggest. And because a root of much of this, and especially the mainstreaming of this, as is suggested by Frank's article in Spike, is the degradation of so much kind of mainstream public life. You know, the fact that we no longer understand capitalism as a system of relations, but it, it's very normal to think that it's simply a product of greedy bankers or greedy Jews or greedy so-and-sos who are out to get us all conspiring together to put people down rather than seeing it for what it is, which is a kind of system of power relations that we could, we could certainly challenge, but you know, it's not down to malign intent (laughs) as is often suggested. Ella, did you want to come in? I mean, that's really important because there are instances in history that we can point to where um, perhaps not conspiracy theories have come true, but things have been done behind closed doors and kept secret and hidden from the public and the truth hasn't been put out there. I mean, just to pluck one from history, I mean, the war in Northern Ireland, it's since then come out that the British state got up to all kinds of things that no one knew was happening at the time. So you have a a kind of a, a fine line to tread between being wise to the fact that many conspiracy theories are more about the kind of problems with people not being able to come to terms with the truth or having conspiratorial minds, but that some of them are not necessarily true, but gossip, suggestion, rumour, all these things should have a place within free discourse because every now and then the truth gets hidden. And that's, I mean, Spike has done work on this in relation to press freedom before, which is that the importance of having freedom of speech is not so that you can let every tinfoil hat wearing nut job spout off about their particular personal theory, but because by seeing the whole picture in all its shapes and sizes and madness and sensible um, rhetoric, and it's important to know that actually lots of these conspiracy theories are being putting up by 
academics and journalists, not uh, <laughs> nuts balding men in their basements, is that you, by sifting through that, eventually find the truth. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. Much of the world is now living under lockdown, with governments attempting to stem the spread of coronavirus. One of the most obvious side effects of this policy has been the massive economic shock it has caused. In Britain, the Office for Budget Responsibility has forecast a drop in GDP in the second quarter of this year of 35%. It also expects unemployment to rise by 2 million to 10% of the population. For this section, we're joined by Phil Mullen, a regular contributor to Spiked on economic issues and author of the upcoming book, Beyond Confrontation, Globalists, Nationalists and Their Discontents. First of all, Phil, on on the OBR figures, we knew the situation was going to be pretty dire, but could you give us a sense of just how serious and devastating this kind of economic contraction could be? I think the OBR is broadly right in the short term in that uh, we and the rest of the world is in an economic shock of unprecedented uh, magnitude. But I would make the distinction between what's going on in this quarter while the lockdown is happening from the analysis of what may happen um, beyond. And in that respect, I think in terms of some of the commentary we've had over the last few days after the the announcement of the OBR assessment and also the IMF uh, projections came out pretty much at the same time, I think too much of the commentary has been looking at historical comparisons rather than the specifics of today. And while it's always interesting to look at what's you know happened in the past, I think this idea that how does this rank to the financial crash of 10 years ago or 11 years ago, how does this compare to the 1930s? Is it the same as the Great Depression, worse than that? Is that, is that you know, what, what's the level of pain? And I think those sort of comparisons are not helping address the specifics of today because this is a recession like no other. Because unlike every other recession, it is controlled. It is controlled as in the government has made a decision to shut down the economy. And that's very different to the working out of financial tensions and instabilities and fragilities as there was before the 2008, very different to the systemic problems which were at the root of the Great Depression. By being the result of a self-imposed shutdown, this has consequences for the way we should view it. So to take the OBR stuff, yes, it is an abrupt, brutal plunge in output. And you know what they assess is a, is a reasonable guesstimate for what will happen if the lockdown continues for the second quarter, which is what their base assumption is. Then they say from that scenario, and then things slowly ease back, then it will be short term, you know, a third of the economy is not working. Later, you know, things will slowly recover. But what it doesn't do, firstly, we need to disentangle the impact on output, what we're producing, from the impact on our livelihoods. I think that sort of short-term differentiation is very important to recognize. The contraction in output 
it's predictable because we're not, you know, most of us are working from home or businesses are shut down or there's no sports events going on, there's no leisure activities and so on. So that's predictable. What isn't predictable is, is this going to mean real pain for people over the next three months? And that's much more down to the government. The second thing which needs to disentangle is the extent to which this is going to have medium term what they call scarring effects. That's a term that's been discussed a lot in the last few days. What will be the implication later? And I think that needs to be disentangled either direct medium-term effect of the close down from the other longer-term effect, which is that we started this cash crunch recession, as I call it, with a very, very weak economy. And it's that pre-existing weakness needs to be disentangled, as I say, from what would be the medium-term knock-on effects. Tom? So, Phil, I just wanted to get your thoughts on um, the government's response to this crisis so far. So it was revealed this week that just $1.1 of these COVID-19 bailout loans have been issued to UK firms as part of this um, loan scheme to keep all of these different companies on life support during this process. I think it's only one in five businesses that have actually applied have been granted the funding. So there's been a lot of questions around that. But just on the broader scope, I think, is the government doing enough? Uh, definitely not. I think it's a, it's a, been a dismal failure so far. And I mean, $330 billion was the headline figure. That's, you know, adding up all the different loans to different size companies and so on that the government was putting on side. And the pledge to do whatever it takes was one I endorsed at at the beginning. I think that's a reasonable thing to do. It follows on directly from the peculiar, unprecedented nature of this recession, which is that it is self-imposed. It's a government decision to stop the economy, stop society, and therefore businesses and individuals are being hit for no fault of their own. And therefore, it's quite legitimate for the government to say, in order to mitigate that effect of what we're doing for the health interests of the country, uh, we will compensate. But they're not doing it. I mean, it is, it is a shambles. Only about 6,000 companies have got loans. And there's many, many more needing the money. And they need the money this week. Most companies, average small, medium-sized company is estimated to have about a month of spare cash. No money is coming in. And so they may just be able to squeeze through Uh, to the end of this month, but they've got their payrolls either at the end of this week on Friday or some companies at the end of the month. That means that's when the the payday is and they've got to generate those payrolls this week. And if they don't have the cash, if they've run out of that one month of buffer cash, then that's when it's going to start causing companies either to lay off their workers or simply to go bust. It didn't have to be this way. That would be my main message. The decision to close the economy down is one that can be justified, and the, the government should be accountable for that, and it's explained why it's doing it, and, that, and that's a, you know, a health factor. What is not acceptable is to raise people's expectations, business expectations, and people's day-to-day expectations, and saying, we'll do whatever it takes to compensate you, because quite clearly they haven't done that, because so many people are short of cash at the moment. And so many businesses are short of cash and unable to keep going. We'll have to question why is there this shambles? Why is there this chaos? Why are there so many businesses trying to apply and not? I think the responsibility is with the government. Some people are trying to blame the banks and remembering, you know, the banks have a pretty bad reputation from 11, 12 years ago uh, and saying, oh, it's just the banks being very particular and stuff. No, the key point is the lending criteria, I think, that the government have set because they have said that basically they want the money to be lent to companies which are solvent. And that puts an onus on the banks as intermediaries to show that the people they're lending the money to are viable. And that's an impossible thing to do in this scenario. Businesses have been told to go away and do 12-month cash flow forecast to show that they are solvent. 
It's ridiculous in this scenario. But the banks are simply following on the message, the criteria, the lending criteria they've been given by, by government. So what should happen? I think they should just put into practice their 100% pledge to compensate businesses for their running costs and to compensate people either through the payroll, i.e. indirectly through business to keep people on the payroll. And I'd extend that to contract workers as well as uh, employed workers and do it as a 100% guaranteed loan. And then at the end of this process, when the pressure's off, then the businesses can put in their receipts effectively and say, right, these were the losses which we incurred as a result of not being able to undertake business. And the government should write off that proportion of the loans. And if there's any money left over, the government businesses can pay it back or whatever. So it should be full responsibility by the government. And the cost of turning these into grants later, i.e. not expecting companies to pay back, I think is entirely legitimate. Because I say, this is not something which has been caused by the businesses themselves. It's something imposed upon upon them by the government in the interest of trying to contain this pandemic. Ella. So Phil, I wanted to ask you about the sort of narrative around the discussion about the economy. Watching, was talking on Thursday, watching the press briefing today, Dominic Raab at, at one point almost sort of weirdly sounded slightly anti-capitalist when he said, you know, I know that we're losing money from the shutdown. And I know businesses are going to go to the wall and we know all of this, but the issue is to save lives. And there's this dichotomy between the moral quest to protect life and the sort of desire to keep pushing for profit by focusing on keeping shops open. And you're sort of evil if you talk too much about the economy and not enough about the the, the moral reason behind protecting people and the moral reason behind the shutdown. But I mean, what that seems incredibly simplified to me. What do you think about that? On a day-to-day level, we know life is full of trade-offs. So, you know, that's just part of life. But I think as an argument or as a discussion to pose what's going on at the moment as a necessary trade-off between, as you say, the economy and health or profits and people's lives. I think that's very unhelpful, but also I think it's it's somewhat disingenuous. And it, it's damaging, I think. I think it's quite harmful. Because when it's presented in that way as either this or that, firstly, that's a very crude way of seeing things. It doesn't have to be an either or. It's not a black and white situation. But by posing it in a black and white situation, that's either one thing or the other. It also encourages a, a sort of a fatalist approach that there's nothing we can do about this. If we all agree, because who, no one's going to go out there and say, you know, profits are more important than, you know, people dying in old people's homes and people are dying in hospitals. And so to pose it as a trade-off in a way which is in some ways unanswerable, because if you try and question things and people come back and say, ah, all you're doing is putting the economy against health, you know, you're just a, a crude materialist or whatever, then by closing off that discussion, I think that is, is what becomes unhelpful. Because there are genuine and diverse aspects to consider in this. I mean, just in the last week, it's become clear, not just on the ec- economic aspects, but also on the health aspects that there's, you know, the number of people, we've heard the stories of the number of heart attacks that people are not going into hospital or not ringing 999 because they're worried about overburdening the uh, the overstressed NHS. Uh, we have situations where cancer patients are not getting the treatments or the operations which they were expecting. So this has health consequences as well as economic ones. And those things need to be discussed. And if everything is posed too blandly in a, it's this or health, the economy or health or anything else, that, that this is the only thing we can consider, 
nothing else can be traded off against it, then it disparages having any discussion about those things. And then I think that is also going to create a lot of social divisions about that because it's going to build up uh, frustrations and build up an antipathy to what's going on, which is unnecessary. Much better to have things openly discussed. And finally, Phil, what does the kind of post-coronavirus economy look like? What kind of trends do you think are are being accelerated or, um, you know, can we see emerging from this? And maybe what do you think it should look like instead if you disagree with kind of how things are shaping up? I I think it looks pretty grim. I think it looks pretty brutal. But I think we do have to separate out two different things, which is there will be a lot of speculation about how the closure has ripple effects or repercussions on different parts of the economy. You know, if the government continues to fail as it is on the question of compensating people and keeping people in work and keeping people with income, which is what it should be doing. If that happens, then more people becoming unemployed, falling out of the labor market, they'll say, well, that that will have an impact. If there's more and more uncertainty about the possibility of a second wave because there isn't a vaccine yet or whatever, then that may have an impact on, on business investment and so on. Those things, yes, we can discuss. But much more importantly, to disentangle from that, is the recognition, the honest recognition that we entered this pandemic with huge problems beforehand. And that's something which the government is, in a sense, in denial about. I mean, this week, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, whenever he responded to the OBR report, he came out with this claim that we began this recession with a fundamentally sound economy, he said. Now, that is rubbish, right? And to spread that false presumption that things were really okay. And therefore, once we're through this bad patch, which we you know, all have to grin and bear through that, and if we behave ourselves and social distance and so on, then things will be okay and we'll get back to normal. That is deceptive and delusory. And, and I think it is, it is very unhelpful for, for society because it's dishonest. Uh, I'm not saying uh, necessarily the government's being, being uh, openly dishonest. Maybe they think they're trying to buoy up people's spirits. But when you have a economy which has been flatlining for the last 10 years, when productivity has been going nowhere, when living standards for people have been either flat or, or, or in some cases declining, then this recession is then superimposed on top of that decrepit economy. And the idea that things are going to bounce back because we were fundamentally signed is, I say, very, very misleading and is going to aggravate the damage which comes after. I mean, this should be an opportunity an economic opportunity, because what the the recession, this recession has done, self-imposed as it is, health-related as it is, but what it's done is exposed the fact that there are a hell of a lot of companies there, just one thing is exposed, a hell of a lot of companies there who are extremely debt-dependent, right? People have known that, but no one's been too willing to challenge it because things have just trickled along and and we've muddled through over the last period with uh, debt-dependence. Now, people realize, well, actually, this is a bit of a problem. You know, that's why companies are even worried about taking loans, because, you know, they can't afford their existing loans, they're just on the edge. So the extent to which this is a catalyst, and opens up the recognition that things are worse than fundamentally signed, then that can invite a good discussion, a good debate about what needs to be done. So I think the first thing we need is some honesty from the government, not this delusion that everything will turn out all right, and will bounce back again. In that sense, it should be an opportunity to be able to have that bottom-up discussion about the sort of fundamental restructuring we need at an economic level to rid ourselves of these uh, zombie businesses which are just keeping their heads above water, giving jobs to people, but not very good quality jobs and pretty low-paid jobs, gives an opportunity to say, well, that's not good enough. We need a different 
type of economy. We need to reset the economy and we can use the trauma and the tragedy of this, uh, of this health crisis, of this health pandemic as a springboard to actually in the next two, three years, get the economy back in a stronger position. But if we don't do that, the damage is going to be longer running. The pain for people is going to be much more prolonged than it needs to be if the government continues this pretense that really everything was all right before COVID-19 came along. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. In the dying days of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, members of his team were tasked with preparing a report to give Labour's side of the story in relation to the EHRC investigation into anti-Semitism within the party. That report was leaked earlier this week, sparking a bitter row about the 2017 election. The messages sent between Labour Party staffers paint a picture of a party machine intent on sabotaging Corbyn's election campaign in order to replace him with a more amenable centrist leader. The leak has sparked another round of Labour infighting, and Labour leader Keir Starmer has promised an inquiry into the report. Ella, what are your thoughts on this latest episode in Labour? It's quite remarkable, actually, just to to hammer home how divided and how fractious the Labour Party is in its internal workings. I mean, what a, a politics is a dog eat dog world, but I feel for anyone involved in the Labour Party because. The really striking thing about this report was not just that there were individuals like the former General Secretary, Lord McNichol, but there was also within this report huge amount of information about private WhatsApp messages of people privately calling Diane Abbott something horrible or saying someone had a hatchet face or, you know, Seamus Milne was a mentalist and all these things that normal people say to each other in the privacy of their WhatsApp groups and show me one political party that isn't brutal in some forms and, you know, wake up. This is the world of politics. People do this kind of stuff. It's not all nice handshakes and upfront sort of interactions. Things happen behind the scenes. But the obviously serious point about this is this is a situation in which for political gain, people weaponized anti-Semitism, either to, you know, on the pro-Corbyn side saying anti-Semitism isn't a problem in this party. It's people cooking it up and saying that we are anti-Semites because they hate us. And it seems from this point on the other end, you had people like Lord McNichol and others basically allowing things to get so bad in terms of anti-Semitic bigotry so that essentially the ship would stick to Corbyn. And, you know, if anyone who's a Jewish Labour supporter or member out there should feel sick at this, and it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or not, it's, it's pretty disgusting. This is the lowest kind of political battling to use bigotry and racism to score political points. So it really doesn't look good for a Labour Party. And let's not forget that it really hasn't bounced back or come out of the anti-Semitism saga. It doesn't matter that Corbyn's gone and it doesn't matter that Keir Starmer's now the leader. That is still very much an open question and you still very much get the sense that the Labour Party and its members are still split on this eternal question of either 
their prejudice against Jews or they're lying about prejudice against Jews. And that's going to be a problem for a while, I think. Of course, one of the most remarkable things is that most of the row that has followed the leaking of this report has had nothing to do with anti-Semitism at all. And that entire discussion that you've just alluded to, Ella, has been completely ignored and buried by the Corbynist, as I suppose, in quite typical fashion. Instead, the main bone of contention that has come out of it has been whether Ian McNichol and co sabotaged the 2017 election, an election that for some reason the Labour Party or many of Corbyn's biggest fans contend that they were in within a hair's breadth of winning when, yes, they did much better than expected, but they still lost quite badly and lost by nearly, Mm. you know, close to a million votes. Tom, did you want to talk a bit about that? Quickly, just want to come to the anti-Semitism thing, because it's, it's worth putting a final point on this, because as far as we know, this was a report that was commissioned by the um, former leadership. We don't really know who authored it. All of that's a little bit unclear. But as you say, there is something so remarkably, almost hilariously Corbynista about setting out to do a report into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party or a supplementary document as they were going to submit it to the Equalities and Human Rights Commission. And it just descending into recriminations about factional infighting and not backing the leader and backstabbing the leader. Um, and these just kind of long, bitchy exchanges about nothing. And you, it just really reflects kind of the lack of seriousness that I think um, a lot of people around Corbyn took the anti-Semitism issue. They could only ever really see it through the prism of those kind of factional fights. But on the other hand, you see what remarkably um, inept and similarly factional and superficial people the Labour right are, you know, and it was just, it was just so many people, I think, looking on on this discussion. It was quite confusing as to understand what it was even about at first because you know as you say normally it was about anti-semitism but all this other stuff was pouring out just really underscored what a kind of unpleasant and small world the Labour Party feels like in many respects I think on that point about the reaction to it from Corbynistas has again been very revealing you have the revival of what Yain Joy and Spike this week referred to as the kind of the glorious myth of 2017, this mm. idea that, you know, one more heave and we would have been in Downing Street. And therefore, if Ian McNichol and his WhatsApp group weren't getting up to what they were getting up to, they would definitely be there right now. It's just complete nonsense. Um, first of all, because as you say, they did lose, despite what Richard Bergen likes to think from time to time. Um, <laughs> there's also the fact that, you know, in many respects, despite the fact their vote share went up and they did win seats, it sowed the seeds of the big wipeout in 2019 because you had yeah. trees may pick up a lot of support in pro-leave working class heartland seats, only taking a handful of them, but really kind of laying the groundwork for, to mix a metaphor, the destruction of the Red Wall later on. So that's one thing that's quite clear. But they're not just wrong. I think it just taps into this kind of victimology that Corbynistas have. And their inability to recognise that their project failed, their refusal to believe that it was because they fundamentally put off the public, that they failed to convince them of their programme and of the quality of their leadership. And it has to either be the media or the right of the party or some kind of external force that just got between them and power. And I think all of the discussions that we've seen in the wake of this report, I think have just really demonstrated that incredibly remarkable inability to just take responsibility for what was a catastrophic defeat. And the longer they go on like this, the um, more and more irrelevant they're going to feel, it feels like. You've been listening to the Spiked podcast. For more Spiked content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com, where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.